Welcome to Simpac Live, where the rubber meets the road. I'm your host, Jeff Matthews. Today, I interview Heather Bone, ESG Director at Team Global Express. Team Global Express, was previously known as Toll Global Express, is an Australian-owned freight and transport logistics business, primarily operating across Australia and New Zealand. They operate over 7,000 trucks, 41 planes, two ships, and 150 properties. The commercial transportation sector is one of the hardest to abate sectors, and it affects all of us. How we move our goods around without adding to their carbon footprint is one of the biggest yet unanswered questions about the energy transition. So it's a real pleasure to have Heather Bone on our show to give us some insight into where we think the whole thing is heading. Welcome, Heather. Heather, when I was looking through your CV to praise it for the introduction, it was too long. You've seriously, you've done some seriously impressive things, and I just wondered if you would, if you'd just introduce yourself for the audience to save me missing out what you think is the important bit. Okay, wow, okay. Uh, well, um, I actually started my career in investment banking, would you believe, and discovered fairly quickly that I'm a really bad finance person. Uh, but, but what was interesting was I, I was doing law at the time and my honours for law was in sustainable development and corporate governance. And when I went to the law faculty and said, this is what I want to do, you know, this was the late 90s, early noughties, they said, what are you talking about? What, what, what is, what's this sustainable development stuff you're talking about? It, it was really interesting. And um, from that point in time, I started working in predominantly heavy equipment. So, so mining, um, transport, uh, big yellow trucks, big heavy engines, lots of fuel, those things. And uh, my dad used to say to me, why are you a sustainability person working in mining? That doesn't make any sense. And I said, well, where else can you make a difference? So I think when you embed yourself in an organisation that you're passionate uh, about that industry, then it just all seems to come together, right? And here I am at Team Global Express looking after uh, oh, about 7,000 trucks, uh, two ships, 41 planes, 1,500 forklifts, about 15,000 people. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty incredible place to be. It's all just come together in a miracle at the end, Jeff. What Wonderful, wonderful. Now, Heather, and also what you, what you do now affects everyone or, or all your clients because everyone else because your scope one and two emissions everybody else's scope three emissions and in fact if you don't have scope one and night two no one has to worry about scope three almost <laughs> exactly we're the problem yes yes <laughs> and you're in the hardest to abate sectors transportation, freight, commercial transportation, freight transportation. Mm. And I note, I, I, I listened to um, Michael Liebreich and uh, Lord Adair Turner the other day discussing where this is going, you know, to, out to 2050. And they still have disagreements. I, I'm sort of actually in Michael Liebreich's camp, by the way. I think Lord Adair Turner's a little ambitious, especially around uh, hydrogen and, and its role in, in, in heavy freight. So we don't have clarity about where we're going. We know we're pursuing routes, you know, and but we don't know which one's going to be the technological winner. So we are looking, at, at, the, the viewers are looking to people such as yourself who have in-depth knowledge and are working with the, with the, with the manufacturers and the providers um, to give us some idea about where this is going, understanding that we actually don't really know yet. Uh, uh, Jeff, it's such a 
it's it's been a long journey as well. You, you, if you think about, for for example, sustainable aviation fuel. I started working in SAF, I think in about 2006, so nearly 20 years ago. And I remember at the time some people from Boeing and Qantas and Virgin saying, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen by 2025? And I said, absolutely, we'll have SAF. We'll have it in big volumes. We'll have technology that can, uh, you know, operate those planes on, on SAF. But look at us, we're still, we're still trying to figure it out. I think sometimes we might underestimate how blooming hard some of these things are going to be to to be successful. Yes, yes, and and even even and I, I note the, the the global maritime organisation, um, whatever its acronym is called, was sort of bracketed e methanol and e ammonia together now, and they haven't they haven't picked a winner. <laughs> so and it's, even they very don't different know. products. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 I suppose when you when you when you look at those products and you go, you know, what are the advantages of one versus the advantages of the other? You could debate that till the cows come home. And so, and I see some shipping organisations are going with uh, ammonia, and some are, are, are building building out methanol. Yeah. Um... And, and shipping is, when you think about hard to abate, if you think about trucks being hard to abate and, and planes being hard to abate, gee, ships take it to a whole new level because you're only going to be able to make these changes to the ships when they're out of the water. So so our two ships, for example, they're, they're, they're actually fairly new. They were sort of 2015, 2016. Um, they're multi-fuel engines. But in order to be able to use different fuel types, you still have to take them out of the water. And that's a, a huge time and cost commitment for a business to look at doing. I know our, uh, our team on the ships are very keen to look at uh, methanol. Um, they're, they're really keen to see whether a, um, some sort of e-methanol, as, as we call it, uh, will be compatible with the ships. Um, I don't think that we'll go down an ammonia path. I think that's probably a step into the future, probably the next you know five or ten years when the ships are out of the water again after that. Um, but if you think about what you could do right now, um, you, you look at ANL, you look at Maersk, uh, some of our big competitors and in the, the international shipping uh, world, and they're looking to biodiesel, they're looking to renewable diesel, they're looking at what are the alternative fuels that we can use in those ships without having to make those modifications. And the same goes for, for our trucks. You know, we need to have uh, opportunities right now to make these changes that are going to be um, uh, nowhere near as cost competitive or cost prohibitive for the market because the, the, more, the more changes we make, the more costly it is for the consumer and the consumer can't bear that cost. The cost has to go somewhere, right? So if you look at... Um, look at our trucks for example um, there's probably only a handful of things that we can really do with our trucks into the future so one is absolutely light and medium rigids will likely be electric vehicles they're going shorter distances they're taking lighter loads um, and we're w working very very closely with our OEMs on where we might be able to roll out electric vehicles as an example but it's going to be in a particular area of the market, a particular segment. Um, at the higher end of the market, at the heavier, the longer distances, heavier payloads, we know at some point in time hydrogen will be 
uh, will be real, um, probably about the same time as Australia accepting nuclear energy, mind it, you know, <laughs> it might be a while away. Um, but it, it's certainly not going to be real, I, I would say, in this decade. I, I would say we'll have ones and two trucks a bit the way we have uh, EVs at the moment, but we're not likely to have hydrogen in reality until, I would say, next decade sometime. So in the meantime, we have to have a solution now, which means that we have to be more efficient with what we're doing. We have to have different trailer configurations to make sure that we are being the most uh, efficient that we can be, that we're optimising our operations in the best way. Critically for us, we have to have renewable diesel. We have to have a biodiesel that's been hydrocracked so it's chemically indecipherable for our engines. And we can use them in all of our engines now. So you know, think back to what I mentioned about SAF. SAF and renewable diesel, or HVO is sometimes uh, known, particularly in Europe, um, they are two fractions of the same renewable barrel of oil and they are absolutely critical at the moment. So, you know, if I was an investor in Australia, I would be looking at how do I invest in either the feedstocks for renewable diesel or the technology to produce it locally. And are you, are you looking like, obviously, we're talking about conversion of the existing rolling stock, but as rolling stock ages and gets, you know, replaced, uh, uh, the, the next replacement vehicles you're getting, uh, are they? Are you looking at electric? Are you in that in that um, in in that uh, mode at the moment? That what your, what your what your next purchases will be will be, you know, low emission. Oh, absolutely. Uh, whether whether that's electric vehicles for light and medium rigids, uh, or whether or not it's Euro six for our prime movers and our heavier fleet. Absolutely, we we have to get lower emission vehicle technology now. Um, although you know Australia is lagging the rest of the world, we're, we're only mandating Euro six at the end of next year. Uh, you know, the end of twenty twenty four. I think Europe ha yeah. has had it in place for at least ten years by the time that comes along to Australia. Um, so absolutely, the, the new fleets that we are getting in are the lowest emitting technology possible for that application of the, the truck, of the, of the vehicle. But there's not one magic silver bullet. There's not one magic solution. It's not like we're going to have all EVs. It, it's simply not going to be possible to transition all of that fleet over to electric vehicles, not only because the fleet doesn't exist at the moment. You know, heavy, heavy electric vehicles don't exist at the moment, um, or they're just coming into Australia. So we're starting, as an example, to see uh, Volvo and Daimler with Mercedes bringing in much higher prime movers, you know, higher payloads, longer distances, that sort of thing. Um, but then you have to think about what is the implication for our grid network? That energy has to come from somewhere. We need to come quickly, efficiently. Uh, we don't have our trucks parked up just waiting to, you know, you know, charge. It's not like pulling up into a service station where you can happily sit there for a few hours while it charges. So, the impact on our grid is going to be enormous. Um, I, I did a, a quick back of the envelope calculation just before you and I got on the call, and at the moment as an entity, and we have 144 depots, um, we use about, give or take, between sort of 40 and 45 gigawatts, let's say 50 gigawatt hours of, of energy every year. Um, 
that in the first instance has to be coming from renewable sources, which it's not at the moment. If we transitioned just our light and medium ridges, so say 2,000 of our vehicles, that would change our energy demand from that 50 gigawatts to probably about 250 gigawatts of energy. That's a huge impact on the energy grid capacity in Australia. That, that's just one entity. You know, imagine if everyone decides to go electric vehicles. So uh, I would say there will be a place for EVs. Yep. There'll be a place for liquid hydrogen injection into internal combustion engines. There will absolutely need to be renewable diesel. Uh, so, so we're not going to have one solution. We're going to have a, a multitude of solutions. Yep. Yeah. Um, interesting. I, I watched a video over the weekend of um, Tesla, um, uh, the new Tesla trucks uh, with Pepsi, and their depot in, in Sacramento. And you know they um, they're recharging those trucks to 95% in 20 minutes, um, but they've installed um, a large battery capacity to charge it. And um, and they work with the utility to to, to, to stabilise the grid and take that um, take that energy because as you know California will be like parts of Australia that there's going to be a lot of excess energy in the grid usually in late mornings when lots of solar comes in and and that's going to have to be stored and, and utilised uh, um, later so yeah it, it doesn't it doesn't look a um, uh, Operationally, they're saying that it will pay back, but there's a, there's a big capital. It, somebody described it as buying your next 10 years fuel up front. <laughs> that, that's a really good way, I, I think, to put it. It's a bit, I heard this wonderful analogy about, um, about emissions, and it was about how uh, you know, it's like asking, you know, you need to go on a diet. It's like asking someone else to go on your diet for you and then going to McDonald's and getting breakfast. Um, you know, we're, we're, yeah, that, it's going to be interesting to that, see. That, yes, I, I, I've um, I've uh, publicly outspoken against what, how the aluminium uh, industry is not doing enough. And the analogy I use, because they use it, is they claim they're decarbonising, and they're not. In fact, it's people like you and me buy household solar, and we're decarbonising the grid. And I and I say it's like <clears throat> your next door neighbour buying an electric vehicle and you claiming you've helped decarbonise the neighbourhood. <laughs> exactly. That's it, exactly. So, um, yeah. Oh. And this is why people are looking to their their, their transport and freight providers because um, it, 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 they can do a, a whole lot in their own businesses um, uh, and, and, manuf and manufacturing businesses and small businesses to um, reduce their emissions. But once the goods leave the door... It, it, they're not in control of the process, and, that, and that's um, and that's why it's really interesting uh, to hear from you. Can, can we talk about? Um, have you got priority areas? I, I mean, are you looking at decarbonising your smaller vehicles first? Have you got a schedule? Have you got a, a strategy of what you're going to do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And although I think, um, you know. My treasurer would probably kill me if I told you exactly what that was because you know the cost the cost is just hideous. And when you think about transport, the margins in transport, they're in the ones and twos and three percents. So if I then look to changing over that fleet, 
that either the business goes broke or the cost goes somewhere. That's why I always keep saying, you know, the cost has to go somewhere. So if you think about um, our plans for the next one, two, five, ten years, I think we're going to see an exponential change in uh, behaviour around the fleet and the, the, an exponential purchase change because we're just seeing technology is not going at a, a nice rate like that. Technology is going... Whee! Um, yeah. And so we're going to have a lot of different opportunities. But when I refer to cost, to give you a bit of perspective around um, electric vehicles, and this, this only relates to, again, light and medium widgets, um, the total cost of ownership, when you look at that compared to an ICE vehicle and being an internal combustion engine vehicle, the total cost of ownership of an equivalent ICE to, to an EV is more than double more than double it's and it's not like uh, the ice vehicles are going down in cost and evs aren't coming down in cost because critical rare earth minerals that go into the batteries the lithiums and these sorts of things they're not coming down in cost either so i would say instead of electric vehicles coming down in cost in the way you would expect your your mobile phone to maybe come down in cost uh, they're not doing that. In actual fact, the diesel vehicles are coming up. So while EVs might come down a little bit, it's actually the diesel vehicles are, are coming up to meet that sort of parity. Um, and that's just only the truck. So we have to remember that when you talk about an electric vehicle, particularly an electric truck, you're not just talking about a truck, you're talking about a total energy management system. So I'll give you the example of our Bungarabi site. So we've been very, very fortunate in, in working together with ARENA, Australia's Renewable Energy Agency, um, as the recipient for a grant to install 60 electric vehicles. It's going to be a, a huge project, a, a huge transition and change for that site. At that site, we have kilometres of conveyor systems and, and you go in at certain times of the day and you've got hundreds of thousands of parcels whizzing around, you know, it's in incredible to see. But we had to be very particular about where we were going to situate the trucks on site to charge, um, what times of the day they're going to charge in order to avoid peak load and peak capacity and a pricing that goes along with that. Um, we're needing to educate our drivers around, yes, they might pull up and, and plug in, but that plug is not actually going to be turned on until probably about 8.30 at night. So the smarts that go around it as well. Um, and that's putting aside any fear or frustration around safety issues or trip hazards and, and all of these sorts of things. So um, we've had to work really closely with our energy provider to make sure that we're not tipping over into a load that we simply don't have yep. coming into that site. So it, it, there's all of these other things around yes. the edges. And um, and I know that uh, one of the earlier uh, conversions to electricity was actually a, a mining site in, in uh, Europe and uh, they set up a division to manage their energy and the division actually became profitable because it was buying and selling energy during the, during the day and night and they were trading energy. And that's yeah. one of the things I was going to ask you about too because it, it's going to be clear that 90% of all the batteries manufactured on Earth are going to go into EVs. Mm -hmm. And so it means that you can't, no grid will be able to build enough battery capacity 
its its EV capacity is going to be ninety percent of its of its battery capacity. So it, it, the grids will have to use EVs to be able to have two way you know uh, trading a trading of energy. And uh, so you're actually if you get enough together, you'll actually support the grid in terms of when it's low by 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 putting your energy back in and then by and then getting it back later at a cheaper cost. That, so, that's it exactly, Jeff. We we need to actually think of so we've got um, BESS or we call her Bessie, which is a one megawatt battery energy storage system coming yeah. to the Bungarabi site to support those sixty trucks. Yeah. Um, we have solar on the roof at the moment, but it's only about the equivalent of twenty five or so percent capacity of what that site actually needs. Yeah. So. What I would like to do is use the battery in exactly the way you've described so that we can start arbitraging those costs, you know, and, and making some money at times that um, we wouldn't normally anticipate. Another thing we're looking at doing, Jeff, in a, in a similar sort of mindset is we have a, long, a lot of on-site storage tankage for liquid fuel. So at the moment, diesel. Yes. Um, that those diesel tanks also support on-site generators so that if the power goes down, we, the generators immediately kick in. What about if we used renewable diesel or biodiesel in those generators at 100% and so we start arbitraging the market at peak load? So we know there's a peak load coming. We know that summer's coming. We know that come 4 o'clock in the afternoon, all of a sudden our, our pricing is going to spike. So putting aside... EVs and the batteries, what about if we just use renewable diesel with a generator to take us off the grid for a period of time and play the market a little bit, exactly as you've described, become an energy trader? Yes, the, the, the IEA in, its, in, its, uh, in this year's uh, energy outlook, uh, they, they made a, a statement about demand-side response, which I haven't seen before from them. Um, and, and as you know, the IEA can be, can be behind and conservative with their, with their outlook. And their statement was, we need to decouple our industrial processes from demand in the grid. And that's exactly, exactly what you put. And if people aren't thinking at your scale and not thinking about decoupling the operations from demand in the grid, that's when we're going to get in, in, in trouble. That's when we're going to get out of the control duck curves and, and all of that. So, you know, um, so it's interesting you're doing that. You've also probably got, if you've got all those big tanks, you've probably got enough space for some um, uh, vanadium flow re, 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 redux uh, batteries, you know, some, some serious <laughs> tanks of... Uh, um, because it looks like those batteries are going to become really... Uh, they're looking at installing them in, in other places that are feeding EVs just because they're big and heavy and they've uh, got some incredible, incredible capacity and they're cheap compared to, you know, the lithium derivatives you know of 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 batteries so let's let's come to um and we've we've touched on your, your trucks and your fleet and we earlier touched on shipping now i'll come back to shipping because uh it, it, last week you might have seen um the chinese have got their first uh container shipping electrification route up um an inland route and and if, for those who haven't seen it it's a container ship it it takes the the batteries are containerized 44 containers are put onto the ship to run the ship and it runs an inland route and then halfway it, it offloads it offloads the containers and onloads and and it, it seems clear that elect i know you're, you're a fan of biodiesel but it seems clear that the um, the shorter routes, which is the majority of routes actually, um, uh, look like uh, electrifications. Uh, it, 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 you know, 
um, running ahead of the pack. Let's say it's not the winner yet. It's just got you know, it's just it's got its nose in front. You know, what um, what's your feeling about that? I mean, have you did you watch that with interest at all? Yeah, I, I actually found that really interesting, but perhaps actually for a slightly different reason to you. So, as I said, we have um, two ships that go back and forth between um, the mainland and Tasmania. So our main competitor there has been incredibly smart, very, very, very smart operator, the, the gentleman who owns the business. And what he's been doing is he's actually got gas ships, so LNG gas ships, and he puts his own B-doubles full of gas on the ships so that he's he, he doesn't need to rely on filling up at either end. He can fill it up as he goes. Yeah. And and it's really smart. And and yes, it's gas, and gas is it's only going to reduce your emissions so far. It's maybe maybe ten percent. So you know, there's still a long way to go. But I think that the opportunity that the Chinese are doing in a similar way with those batteries is is really smart. You've got to think about well, you're going to lose an amount of payload because of the weight of those batteries, yep. but you're going to make up for it for the fact that it makes your energy uh, flow through a little bit smarter. You know, I'd like to see as well, you know, a, a lot of questions that I get are around, or what are you, what are you going to do with batteries at end of life? You know, when we talk about end of life of the batteries, it means on our trucks that they've come down to 80%. Um, you know, similar to your phone. So as soon as they go down underneath 80%, then batteries are supposedly at end of life for that vehicle. But we're going to be looking at, well, how do we consolidate those batteries? We take them out of that truck, but we put them all together so that we have battery banks yes. using recycled batteries. So what's going to be the opportunity there? And, and yes. we're only very, very early days of how do we start optimising that as well? Yes. And, and, I, and I think in the future, you know, people are looking about uh, their own cars and, oh, what do I do when I read new to, new the battery? You'll use it as a household battery. You know, exactly. You'll be able to, those batteries, you'll be able to plug and play them into your house eventually when you renew them. And so, yes, um, thrown away or, or, or um, I, and I was talking to um, uh, the, the Battery Recycling Association the other day, quite, quite an interesting chat, and I'm, go, I'm going to in interview their CEO um, this week, I think. So it's uh, it, it, it's quite, yes, end of life. And, and look, good you brought that up because we all need to be thinking about end of life before we bring anything into this world, you know. We need to we need to start thinking about the full circle and um, and, I, and I don't know if it's still the same fellow at the at battery recycling but it was started by the same gentleman in Canberra who started Tire Stewardship Australia as well so he's really he's thinking outside the box of well what do we do with these things at end of life because absolutely it's not just batteries for us on our vehicle what do we do with tires at end of life you know it, it, mm. there are different ways to either recycle tires or break them down. Um, back into the original hydrocarbons. So when you when you come at it from a, a total circular economy, we have a lot of problems to solve outside of energy. You know, what do we then do with those batteries? What do we do with tyres? What do we do with the scrap metals? And the, and the metal industry has shown uh, they're, they're incredibly smart at recycling metals. Uh, we've just got to figure out what's the best and, and uh, yeah. lowest cost optimised uh, option. And we just and we just got to start doing it in Australia too because uh, exactly. I, I was shocked. I got shocked last week. It doesn't, you know, 
I, I thought, oh, Australia will be, will be recycling aluminium. It's pretty easy to recycle. No, nah, it's all going offshore. We drink, Australians drink six billion ca- aluminium cans a year, six billion. Yeah. And then we ship it in it, well, it maybe one of yours, but ship it in one of these ships <laughs> to Indonesia where they burn coal fire power to recycle it. And, um, and my, my issue with that is, is that, and, I, and I'm guilty of it, um, saying that, you know, aluminium is this beautiful metal and it's infinitely recyclable. But as I just said, there's nothing infinitely recyclable about sending a ship to Indonesia to, to, uh, yep. to recycle it with a coal fire power. So, yep, so we've got to get better. And, and in fact, I, I think the solution, I, you know, this is where I, I believe in regulation. We, with batteries, lead-acid batteries, Australia made it illegal to export them, you know, and there's a great recycling industry here now, mm-hmm. and we recycle all these lead-acid batteries. But we've got to ban, we've got to ban scrap, and, and we're not the only ones. The UK exports something, oh, I think it's near 600,000 tonnes a year, and recycle none in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it um, a, a sad testament to some of the, the countries around the world that that's exactly what happens? My, my understanding is we don't, we don't actually recycle any of the metals here. We send them offshore exactly as you've described, and then they come back to us in yes. more Coca-Cola cans and, and that yes. sort of thing. It's, it's madness. Yes, yes. Okay, so, so let's get back to, 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 um, so to transport. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, you've got a, a few of your own planes, have you? 41 at last count. Yeah. Um, yes. And and we still don't know where we're going with this. There's a few. It is a, it, it looks as though, again, in short-haul flights, the electrification um, batteries uh, seems to have got its nose in front at the moment with um, lots of people pursuing that. Hydrogen doesn't really seem to be a goer, uh, and not because you can't run a, a fuel cell plane. It, that's the easy bit. It's actually storing the hydrogen. That's that's exactly. You know, uh, that, that's not uh, not going to um, make that a winner. And um, and beyond that, long haul travel, we've got to come up with some sort of e-fuel or SAF. You know, you know, uh, and we just still don't know where that is. Have you got any? It's your inside running. Where do you think that's going to go? Oh, as, as I said, I, I thought 20 years ago that we would be far more advanced with staff than we actually are. Um, so, so our our freight, because we do we don't do any passenger um, travel. Of course, we do uh, freight, and I think after Qantas and Virgin, um, we are the biggest freight provider. We're also one of the biggest, if not the biggest, users of their belly freight as well. So the belly of the of the um, plane when it's when it's moving around the sort of product that goes on our planes though when it when it's priority it has to be there there's no there's no option around that um, we do a lot of medical freight um, one that I'm really really proud of is we move blood around Australia so when you uh, go and donate blood and I'm an avid uh, blood donor um, that blood all uh, gets packaged up and goes into remote and regional areas just as much as it gets used in in the city areas um, and so we're constantly moving blood around the country um, you know and, and our, the head of our aviation division is very proud of your moving the occasional elephant um, or horse, you know, racehorses. So we do some really interesting freight um, on those planes. But it also means that 
there's not really any opportunity for that to fail. You do not want um, airline freight to not get there for whatever reason that is, let alone, you know, and I, I would hate to think of some sort of catastrophic event um, of, of one of those planes going down. Um, so, so the airlines have been incredibly strict in the ways that they've started thinking about sustainable aviation fuel SAF, and that is they're saying that not only does it have to meet the fuel quality standard, excuse me as my ear pops out, um, you have to meet a fuel quality standard, which is the highest quality standard you can possibly have. But they're also saying, we want you to have made that fuel in the most sustainable way as well. So the fuel has to come from particular feedstocks, approved feedstocks. It has to have come through a particular technology pathway, so an approved technology pathway. Um, the aviation industry has been very strong in saying that they don't want the feedstocks to be any sort of competition with food sources, for example. Um, so the ethanol um, to jet A that they've been uh, working on for some years, you need to make sure that the ethanol is coming from a waste product rather than a food grade source. They don't want to have that conflict. So um, SAF has, it's this great, bright, shiny object that governments like to focus on, you know, as, as yeah. our governments do, but it's also probably the hardest one uh, to try and to try and um, accommodate, uh, and the pricing of that is exactly you know it's it's what six times the price of the equivalent jet A. Um, there's also big issues around SAF in the way that our airports have been set up around the country. So. If you, if you look at the owners of those airport corporations, um, the whole concept of a Juhai, what we call a Juhai, is it's a joint users um, uh, network of infrastructure. So all of the fuel coming in and out is going through uh, pipes that are owned by some sort of joint venture, which is the airport corporation. And inevitably, um, that, that joint venture has a number of fossil fuel providers uh, at the table as one of the owners of the uh, of the airport corporation as well. You know, we we don't own any airport corporation, but I can guarantee that you know most of Australian, certainly the larger airports, um, there will be yep. uh, a big brand at the table yep. who owns that Drew Height. Yeah, yeah. Where is it? The fossil fuel um, industry got its fingers. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no. Well, they got their, they got their hands on COP at the moment. <laughs> the next COP. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see with um, the the new leader for for the COP uh, being very immersed in the in the fossil fuel industry. Right. Okay. Look, last question. A, a little bit about your role because I think you you're director ESG. Is that correct? Yep. Director ESG. So, yes. yeah, and. And ESG seems to be, and um, this term that, that sort of emerged quite quickly, and and um, and there are a lot of a lot of people on the ground look at ESG as uh, that the corporations were so quick to adopt it. You thought, ah, there's something there's something going on here. Is this, <laughs> this an excuse? Going on. <laughs> is this an excuse to just put a name on something and do nothing? And you know, and uh, do nothing in terms of because because a sustainability uh, a, a director of sustainability and a director of ESG are two different things, and one's got the one's got the environment in mind, and one's got the company in mind, and so it therefore comes to the company's ethics of whether they use somebody like yourself in a way that's going to 
hopefully make a difference and change the planet, or whether they use somebody like yourself who's just going to count the pennies for the companies. And obviously companies have got to make money because if they don't, they're not in business and that's not sustainable anyway. So, um, you know, uh, you know how, how have you found your... ESG role? Do you do you, do you find there's a conflict between putting the company first and, and putting the environment first, or how do you how do you view that? Because a lot because in the earlier conversation you started talking a lot about the cost because the costs have got to go somewhere. If the company can't afford it, then it, your customers will have to pay the bill, which is mm-hmm. correct. Somebody's got to pay the bill. So, so someone's just, got to pay exactly. So I was just wondering how how you how you how you manage that role, and, and you know because your heart seems to be in sustainability. It, it, it is, Jeff, absolutely. And I, and I think um, if we take a step back, the term ESG um, probably arose out of, um, you might have previously heard it as corporate social responsibility or triple bottom line reporting where you're trying to report on the environment, the social and the governance. So my role and that of my team is very broad. Um, if you think about the, the governance part, uh, we look after anti-bribery and corruption, modern slavery, making sure that we're abiding by, and we have robust policies and procedures in place to manage our governance frameworks. Um, Just this morning I was finalising this year's modern slavery statement. So we cover a very very broad church of information, I guess, there. On the social front, um, we we focus a lot on our Indigenous relations, um, but very much as well around diversity and inclusion more broadly. So I sit on our private committee um, and we we work on not only indigenous but also LGBTQI plus Um, but absolutely I would say 90% of our focus is is on the E and the reason for that is because those are things that we have to do we you know those are the regulatory requirements that we need to be driving down our emissions I am incredibly lucky, I have to say, because my CEO, um, a lady by the name of Christina Holgate, is just the most passionate person about ESG. Absolutely so passionate that um, without a a shadow of a doubt, there is never a time that I would go to Christine and she would say, no, I think that's a dumb idea. She will always be there to support ESG. So I think what we're finding now is, uh, your description is spot on. I would say pre-COVID, if I was in this role, um, it would be a ticker box sort of exercise. Now, though, ESG people um, who are not only passionate about sustainability but are thinking of innovative opportunities to overcome these issues, that's the exciting part of the role. And to have this support from Christine, from our board, we're, we're, over, we're owned by private equity and they are incredibly passionate about ESG. So um, although there are frequently times that I go to our finance team and say, can I do this? And they go, no, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Um, there's, there's never a time that I've ever gone to the CEO or to the board and said, hey, I really want to do this. And if you think about the you know, the electric vehicle trial that we're doing the, at Bungarabi. Um, when I went to the board and said, how do you feel about losing millions of dollars to put electric vehicles in place? Uh, because, you know, don't be under any illusion that the grant funding actually covers the cost. We're going to be losing about $25 million in order to put that in place. To have the board and to have Christine say, yep, go for it. Absolutely. We will support you. Um, but we've got to make sure that that 
that makes sense in future times as well, that we as a company, we as an industry can't afford to just be losing money. The world doesn't work that way. Um, but I am incredibly lucky that I've got um, the support of an executive who's incredibly passionate. And, and you know, I, I go and see a huge number of our customers. And what's interesting is we're starting to see the change in the customer as well, in that it used to be I would go into the room and say, hey, we want to do this. How would you pre be prepared about collaborating on something that, yeah, you're probably not going to make money. Hopefully you don't lose money, but you're not going to make a heap of money, but it's the right thing to do. Um, it used to be the customers would... <laughs> Look at me like, what? You want us to do what? Uh, whereas now the customers are going, hmm, okay, well, let's think about let's think about it. Because my argument, Jeff, is unless we are collaborating as a nation, as an industry, as a team, we have to collaborate or we're not going to be yes. successful with these ESG things. We're just not. No, so, hey, so people it, like me feel like Groundhog Day, but finally people are saying, hey, we actually as a world have to collaborate to yeah. get a better outcome. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. We, 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 no one's going to do it alone. And and, and, and it, it, as I said at the start, you know, your scope one and two admission to somebody else's scope three admissions. And yeah. yeah, yeah. Look, Heather, that was a great interview. Thank you very much. Um, very I learned cool. a lot. Um, uh, I love your passion. It's, it's great. You're, you're, you're a person like me, and um, and I'm so looking forward to having you as a panelist at uh, Simpac 2024. And good luck with everything. And um, when you're ready to have somebody um, uh, do some uh, do some broadcasting of your trial results of your electrification, I'd love to come up and have a look. Absolutely, Jeff. And I have a feeling that Simpac is on right about the time that hopefully everything is going to be starting to, to be plugged in and, you know, the lights are going to flash up and wow. we'll have these bright yellow pieces of infrastructure all lined up. By, we call them the minions. They look like little minions all lined up. So um, wow. I will very much look forward to the conference because hopefully by then I'll have some photos to show everyone in the room. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Heather. You're welcome, Jeff. Nice to talk. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.